0: We're continuing in our series in the book of John, the Gospel of John. And as I'll say uh, every week, till you get sick of it, remind you the theme that John, uh, the title of this series called Believe. And the title is derived from what uh, uh, John writes at the end of the book, where he gives us his purpose for writing, where he says in uh, John 20, verse 30. And th- or 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The purpose for why John is written, this is at the end, but the, his purpose and everything that John writes is driving his readers, his hearers towards that goal. And as we continue this morning, we're going to finish chapter 2 and look at verses uh, 12 through 25 this morning. And the title of this morning's message is called The Zeal of Messiah. The Zeal of Messiah. And we're going to look at three different uh, components as we finish chapter 2. But it begins in John 2 verses 12 through 13 that after uh, the, the events uh, of coming from the wedding in Cana of Galilee, verse 12 of John 2, after this, after the wedding, after they left there, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now if you look on a map you'll say well wait a minute it looks like Jerusalem is going down but they always talk about it going up because of the elevation that Jerusalem had so they always sometimes say we went up to Jerusalem even though it'd be like going well I'm going up to Miami. We're like, but if it's kind of an elevated so they talk about Jerusalem going up to Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to see the zeal of the Messiah evidenced in three different parts as we conclude chapter two. And I want you just to kind of hang on to that, that uh, title because remember, Jesus is, is uh, bringing, uh, uh, I'll say, coming out in the sense of his uh, being 30 years old and he's coming and introducing, if you will, and making himself known little by little of why he is here, the Messiah, why Messiah came. And so this morning we see the first evidence. Of that in verses 12 through 18, and we're going to look and see the, the, that Jesus is, we're going to look at his passion for true worship. The first thing we want to see this morning is Jesus' passion for true worship. Now as we read in verse 13, it says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, the Passover. Some of you may not be familiar with that, but the Passover is, the, is one of the, and probably the the. The greatest, but the annual, perpetual celebration that the Lord commanded the Israelites to commemorate the exodus uh, that of their leaving Egypt, and so God established in Exodus twelve that the Passover celebration was to be an annual, perpetual uh, celebration that was to be commemorated uh, by the Israelites, and the, in the New Testament, if you remember that Jesus, they wanted to get his crucifixion in before the Passover began. Passover is in our spring, around our Easter time. Uh, Next year, according to the Jewish calendar, Passover will be April 5th to 13th of next year. But again, it's like sometimes Easter fluctuates depending on the 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 year. And so the Passover celebration was the celebration, the commemoration of God's deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. You remember that the Passover was a part of Jesus's family, that it was a regular part of their celebration. You remember the story in Luke chapter 2 when uh, they went to Jerusalem for the Passover and that was the situation when they had left The boy Jesus there, they had left, and they were like, where is Jesus? And they went back. You remember when he told uh, Joseph and Mary, he said, I must be about my what? Father's business. Well, they were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So it was very much a part of Jesus' life and every Jewish life. And so Jerusalem, people came to Jerusalem. It was a requirement of Jewish law that every Jewish male who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem uh, that they were to make, they visit, on the Passover. Uh, and so they came to P- Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem normally, as far as the population, was normally around 200,000 people. But during the Passover, when you had this influx of, of not just Jewish males, but, but people that wanted to be part of the celebration the city of Jerusalem could be as high as 2.25, 2.5 million people that showed up into the city. So this is a big event. This is a massive event that's going on. Verse 14, we see that in the temple, Jesus, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now what the scenario is, is, and many of you have a, a Bible where you have maps in the back, many of those Bibles have a diagram or description of some sort of Herod's temple, and where this was going on, this selling, that was kind of like a, a flea market, kind of atmosphere, and that was in the outer court, uh, there's a court of the women, there's a court of the Gentiles, but it was kind of in the outer court, but it was in the temple square, if you will, and this is where All of this buying and selling and money changing was going on. And so uh, uh, let me kind of just kind of explain what's happening here. And what aroused the passion, or can we say the anger of Jesus? And we'll talk about that anger in just a minute. Uh, People selling animals. Now one of the things, remember, coming to the Passover, it was a requirement to bring an animal for the sacrifice. Now, here's the dilemma. If you lived, uh, you know, a good distance, the 15 miles, and many live further, that wasn't always really practical to bring your animal or animals to Jerusalem. So, they made a service that in one sense was kind of initiated good uh, in order to say, well, you don't have to, if you wanted to bring an animal or to bring it to sacrifice and you know, pigeons and different because it depended on your what you could afford, depending on your financial situation. You may not be able to afford a, a lamb, and you could buy a pigeon. But all of that was regulated by the Jewish law, and so in a way it was providing a service of help for the people. That was its intention, all right? Now, let's say you did bring your animal, whether it was a lamb or whatever it was that you were bringing to be the sacrifice to your family, there was another hurdle you had to, to cross. That animal had to be approved by the priest. You couldn't bring the one-eyed Sheba lamb and thinking, well, this would be a good time to get rid of you know, that, you know, that lamb. No, 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 no. It had to be perfect. And you never knew what might be the reason why they would disqualify. So now you've brought your animal or animals all this way Only to find out, sorry, doesn't meet the qualifications. Now, all of that, I think, was intended to be a good service at one point. But here's the problem. It kind of became a scam. Because the payment that you would have to pay for an animal to be sacrificed, or to buy an animal there, or to buy an animal that met the regulation of the priest's, oftentimes was double, triple of the expense. And people who were in these outer courts and selling all these various animals, depending on, again, your economic status, depending on uh, the kind of sacrifice that you would bring, all of them kind of got that by way of a franchise. So think about the money trail. They had to know somebody that knew somebody that had to pat somebody's palm to get the little table franchise so they could sell the animals or whatever it is at the Passover. They had to give a kickback to somebody that that in the temple or the priests that were divvying out the businesses there. And then they had to make... And so in order for them to make a profit, guess what? They're going to charge that animal or charge that sacrifice. They're going to add sometimes 100% or more onto that. So it became really it kind of became a scam. And the issue was, what is the temple used for? What was its intended purpose? Its intended purpose was to be a place that people, the the Israelites would meet to worship God. And what do you got going on there? You got a flea market going on there. And worship is kind of in the background. Now, you have another issue there, is you have what other group is Doing business there. You have the, the, the animals. They're selling animals. But what other group does the verse say that's going on there? The money changers. Now what's that about? Well, you have all these Jews coming from all over these various regions. And most of where they all are coming from are dominated or, or under the Roman rule. So the Roman coinage, that money that they would have, has the image... Of who? On the image of the coin. Caesar. You're not going to bring an image of Caesar into an exchange in the temple. So here's another little scam they had going on. They had, just like if you went to a foreign country, you have to exchange American dollars for Canadian or pesos or whatever the situation is. So they could not use Roman coinage in the temple because that would be sacrilege to, it would be idolatrous, okay? So, what did they do? They had to have some money exchanging. So, guess what? The people that had the franchise for the money changing, guess what they're doing? They're, they're kind of bumping things up by charging. You know, I looked on, a, um, on the website this morning that the shekel, you know, Israel still uses the, the uh, biblical language for their money system, and they still use a shekel. A shekel is in an exchange of U.S. dollars is $1 of American money. But a shekel or whatever the money exchange oftentimes had to have all these kickbacks built in. So it wasn't just, hey, I need my few shekels here and i got to pay Uncle Joe over here because he's the one that got me the table and he's got to bump up his, his payment to the, one of the priests in the temple and there's all this. So by the time you're trying to exchange money, guess what? You're, pay- you're almost getting extorted. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see the scenario? Now, do you understand what aroused Jesus' anger when he walked in there? Verse 15, what did he do? It says, in making a whip of cords. Those are just ropes that were laying around. Guess what? If they had all these animals on these, you know, tying them down so they wouldn't all run away, around, there, there probably was lots of these ropes and cords laying all over the place. So it was easy for him to start picking up, and he made a rope of of cords, and what did he do? In making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, I don't know about you, but just kind of stop a minute and put yourself in the situation of the disciples. They hadn't really known Jesus that long. And this is, they're kind of going there, they're kind of excited or whatever. And all of a sudden, they see him doing this. Now, just humanly, I'm thinking, they're like looking at each other and thinking, whoa, what is going on? I mean, this is crazy, right? Um, and so he takes action. Now, one of the things we know that the Romans, they had built a fortress, I think it was called a And it was kind of built above the temple so they could make sure they had a fortress of Roman centurions up there so that if there was any trouble down on the temple square area, they could immediately. Because one of the things the Romans, they didn't care if you worshipped a frog or a chair. They could care less. Just keep the money coming into Rome and don't make any trouble. See, that was Pilate's big deal. He didn't really care. He just didn't want anybody to get back to Rome that, he was, that there, were trou- there was trouble in Jerusalem. Remember Pilate, right? So Rome really just said, as long as you keep the taxes and the money going back to Rome, you can do whatever you want, but just don't cause us any trouble, or don't cause us kind of like, you know, my dad used to say, don't make me come upstairs. Hello? They're like, hey, don't make us come down to Jerusalem because it won't be pretty, all right? So that is what's going on. And people like, again, anger, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on talking about this. Remember, this anger, we could say this is a righteous anger. You know, the Bible does have things, scriptures that talks about uh, uh, in, uh, in Ephesians 420. Don't look this up, but just note. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Anger is is a human emotion. But remember, Jesus is without sin, so whatever anger Jesus has is never going to be sinful. It is right to be angry at abortion and to be angry at the sins and to have an anger. We're not angry and hated. We don't hate people, but there's there's a righteous indignation that I think honors the Lord. Well, Jesus, being sinless, exhibited a righteous, passionate anger over these people, and not just people, but remember what we talked about last week. Remember when Jesus turned the water into wine. Remember we talked about the six stone water pots, and symbolically that they were filled with what that represents. Six was a number of man. Six represented the emptiness of the Jewish system now. And Jesus is coming and not reforming it, but what is he doing? Like that water, that water into wine, he's transforming it. He's changing it. So he's coming into the temple and he's coming in where the corruption and the apostasy has moved away from the genuine worship of the true God. And that train left years ago and there is something that just is aroused in him that they're turning what? His father's house into a flea market. Now, guys, this doesn't have anything to do with the church selling stuff in the church. I know some people like, oh, you know, we shouldn't sell cookies. We shouldn't have this. That has nothing to do with this. Okay, that has nothing to do with anything, all right? Now, has the church in America become very commercialized where you wonder, is this a business or is this about worship? Yeah, yeah, really bad. Really bad on that kind of thing, but we're not going to go there. We'll save, we'll save that for another day. But, uh, but there's something I want to point out to you that uh, uh, is in your, uh, your uh, listener's guide there. You remember we talked about Passover and uh, uh, the problem, they were selling animals, exchanging money. But in Deuteronomy 16 verse 4, Moses told the people by the word of the Lord that during the seven days of the Passover week, there was to be, to be no trace of leaven or yeast should be found in their home. Uh, Exodus, which, uh, sorry guys in the media, I had that backwards. Uh, Exodus 12.15, part of the law, this is what they are to do during the celebration of Passover, says seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. This is how they are to celebrate the Passover week. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day of the Passover week, you shall remove leaven out of your houses, yeast, for if anyone eats what is leavened or has yeast from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Kind of a big deal. Now, leaven or yeast—we'll just say leaven. Uh, you remember, oftentimes leaven in most cases was a symbol or a picture of sin. Remember when Jesus said to uh, to his disciples to watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 16, 6. And so the point is, is that during that week, remember the point of most everything God did in the Old Testament, the festivals, the sacrifice, all those things, was to magnify the holiness of God, and in consequence of magnifying the holiness of God, it was also magnifying the sinfulness of humanity. So, leaven became a representation, a symbol of sin. So, during this Passover, remember what Passover, remember the death angel there in Exodus, when the blood on the doorposts, when they saw the blood on the doorposts, they would, the angel, the death angel that was going about through Egypt, the angel that was bringing death on the firstborn would pass over that house because why? They saw the blood. Do you think that might have some picture, future thing? Yeah, of course, right? Thinking about the blood of Christ. So part of this, 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 um, this uh, imagery, these living illustrations that were to be made with Israel. Remember Jesus in the end of uh, the book of Luke, how it says he, when he was walking along with those two disciples... He showed them all those things in the Old Testament concerning himself, all those things that were pictures and pointed. Well, the Passover was a picture of the atonement, the blood of Christ. And part of that preparation that they were were contrasting is to show that there was a sense of God's holiness and purity that was to be symbolized by their removing of any leaven or yeast in their house. Baking goods, food, whatever. During that time, they were to eat unleavened bread. We use matzah, that's unleavened bread. We use matzah during our communion. That, that's, it's unleavened, doesn't have yeast in it. And so, think about it. What is, what is the Passover purpose? was to make your house ceremonially clean. You with me? Okay, three of you are. I'll just talk longer, all right? Just pretend, all right? No. So, you get, I'm going somewhere with this. Jesus comes into the temple during Passover, and instead of seeing his house pure and clean before the Lord, what does he see? He says, my father's house, and this is a little space on your outline, my father's house is unclean. And really, it's not just the temple. He's saying all of Israel. Everything that should be representing and honoring the Lord is unclean. And that aroused Jesus' passion and his anger for his father's house. Notice he didn't say, your house. This is my father's house. And it's become a den of money changers. Jesus declares... In essence, by his actions, if you will, my father's house is unclean. Verse 17 and 18 notice the two reactions, and they're really the two reactions of anybody that comes in and responds to Jesus. His disciples, verse 17, his disciples, uh, that when that was done, they remembered, and this is verse 17 is kind of a little commentary John puts in there. Uh, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I think that's from Psalm 69 about the Messiah. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Here Jesus has come in and he's established that that this house is unclean and you have two reactions. One, the disciples saw, even if it was looking back, they saw the, the, uh, the... In Jesus' actions, they saw the heart of Jesus. Write that in your outline. They saw the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus. His disciples saw his actions not as just some kind of anger, lost his temper, but they saw the heart of Jesus because it was dishonoring. What they were doing was dishonoring to the Lord Do we have that same response when Jesus, if you could say it this way, comes in and wants to do some house cleaning in our life? Do we see the loving heart of Christ who's wanting us as as a good parent? Remember in Hebrews 12, it talks about a good parent disciplines their child, not for retribution or anger, but what? Restoration. Restoration. When the Lord puts his finger on sin in our life and says that, I don't know how you got there, but that has become unclean in your life, do we have the response where we see the heart of Jesus? What did they see? They remembered, even though it was later on that John put this in, they remembered zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered that Jesus has a heart and a passion for his father's house. Oh God, give me the heart of Jesus. Give me the heart And passion like Jesus. But then you had another reaction. And this is the way it usually works. You had the reaction of the Pharisees who wanted to challenge his authority. Well, who gives you the right to tell us what's right or wrong? See, they were embedded and stuck in their worthless, empty way of worship. They didn't see the heart of Jesus. They weren't looking for a Messiah that was going to be like Jesus. Their concept of Messiah was completely opposite of what Jesus was. They challenged Jesus' authority. What sign? What's the the authority? What's, What's the credentials that you do these things? Already you see here in the beginning of John, you see now a demarcation between those who want... To have the heart of Jesus and those who will resist Him. The zeal of Messiah demonstrated in His passion for true worship that honors the Lord. But notice secondly, is Jesus' promise of His resurrection. Jesus' promise of His resurrection. Verse 18 through 20. So the Jews, we just read it, but so the Jews said to Him, What sign do you show us for doing these things, what what authority do you have for doing these things? Now, one of the most famous statements Jesus gives is in verse nineteen. Jesus answered them, and he said, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." And we're like, I mean, remember, there's always, even that will, and when we come to chapter three, we'll see this with Nicodemus. There's always those who who God has opened up their spiritual eyes to see spiritual truth. And there are those who are dead in their sins who can't see spiritual. They're only seeing the natural. And what are they seeing? They're not seeing spiritually what he's talking about. They don't have a clue because immediately they say, verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And by the way, at this time, it was still like Interstate 4. They were still working on the temple. Your great-grandchildren will really benefit by some of the road work that's happening here in Florida, right? Now we know if you did the math, remember the way the older calendar did is it went backwards and and the birth of Jesus was kind of at the center of zeroing out what became the Roman calendar. So the Herod of Temple was built in 19 B.C. That was uh, 19 or 20 years before the birth of Christ. And then if you do the math at where they're at, the year was probably around the year 27 That's how you get the 46 years. They said, look, it's taken 46 years to build this temple from the time it was started and and rebuilt from the destruction that the Babylonians had had done uh, three or 400 years previous. And uh, how do you figure you're going to rebuild it in three days? But verse 21 explains what he was talking about to his hearers and to the readers, but he was speaking about what? The temple of his body. They were thinking about the natural structure, but he was thinking about the spiritual structure. Now in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Bible marks and says that the temple, our bodies have become the temple of God. You remember in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Where is it? Within you. What it was, the temple. What was the purpose of the temple? It was to be be the, if you will, it was to be the dwelling place of the presence of the Lord. It was a place where people would go and experience the presence of God in the Old Testament. Remember, it started out as the tent of meeting. And then later, David says, you know, I want to build my father I want to build the Lord a house to honor Him. And there was the, the great building of the temple, and later that was destroyed, and what we call Herod's temple that was later built. This is what Jesus and, and Jerusalem is, uh, has today. But the intent was that it was to be a meeting place. That was literally the, the term that was used, a meeting place, where people could go and meet and experience God. Okay? And so now we don't have to go to a temple. I know. I know people get all worked up over rebuilding of the temple. I'm really not that concerned about rebuilding a temple because guess what? I have the, temp- the temple as Christ, and His presence lives in in me. I'm not. I'm not interested in going back to a man-made structure. And I know those that, uh, you know, try to read the tea leaves and prophecy and everything uh, worry about that kind of stuff. I'm not that smart enough to worry about all that. All I know is it says that your body now is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, where did the Holy, what did the Holy Spirit... He wasn't now... The Holy Spirit was now not uh, around us, but the Holy Spirit was within us. The Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was poured out upon all flesh. Remember Jesus said, it is better that I leave you. It is better because if I leave you, I can do what? I can send the Holy Spirit. So the presence of God isn't somewhere we go. The presence of God is now living inside of us because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we are now the temple of the Lord. Okay, so that dynamic has changed. They didn't understand that. But in the Old Testament, and this is one another thing that I think again was misrepresented by what was going on there, is that the temple represented the body of Jesus. The sacrifices that were done in the temple. What did those sacrifices uh, look forward to? They looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would be made by Messiah. And so the temple, which was to be a representation, not an end be all end in itself, but it was to be a representation of the ultimate sacrifice Messiah would bring, that he was the one who by his blood has passed over our sin because of his blood. They were making a mockery of what God had intended the temple and the worship to represent there. But notice thirdly. Jesus' perception of the human heart. Jesus' perception of the human heart. Remember why John is writing what he's writing? He's writing so that you would what? Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? But notice something here about this belief. In John uh, 2, verse 23 through 25. It says, now, when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. That's good, right? But it says they believed in his name when they saw the signs of the That he was doing. Verse 24 and 25 is interesting. But Jesus on his part. Did not entrust himself. To them. Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness. About man. For he himself. Knew. What was in. Man he knew. What was in the human heart. Messiah perceived. The human heart. You know, crowds kind of cut both ways. We get excited at a crowd. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I feel better when there's a crowd here on Sunday than when there's not. All right? That's just human reaction. All right? But Jesus understood that crowds are uh, kind of can be fickled. Uh, when we come to John 6, uh, you remember the feeding of the 5,000. Remember their response in John 6 of the feeding of the 5,000? They wanted to make him king. Anytime the government hands out free stuff, that's a surety to get you elected, right? Hello? Yeah. I mean, and it's on both sides, all right? This is not political. Is, everybody does it. They used to call that pork, right? Bring home the pork, the politicians, right? That's just human behavior. They wanted to make him king, not because he was Messiah, but Why? He gave him free food. And Jesus, when he, if you read John 6, when we come to it, when Jesus began to talk about what it really means to be a follower, a disciple, the Bible says that many of those who were the followers turned and walked away. That was the scene when he turned to his 12 and said, do you want to leave as well? And Peter, every once in a while Peter really hit some home runs, didn't he? And Peter said, where shall we go? For you and you alone have the words of life. See, that's the difference between the fans and the followers. Jesus is not looking for fans. He's not even looking for a crowd. American churches, we, we thrive on crowds, and we, we create all sorts of gimmicks to get the crowd in here. I mean, you probably you know, churches, we're going to give a free iPad to the highest You know, one that brings the most... uh, I've been in churches like that and just drove me batty. Hated it. Hated it. Because it was turning the sacred into a bunch of gimmickry. And I think we have to be really, really cautious and careful. Listen, if if we are... This is free, all right? But listen, if we want to establish ourselves as a place that unbelievers will flock to. Guess what? You don't need me up here teaching the Bible for 45 minutes to an hour. You don't need that. You need a clown in a unicycle with his hair on fire because that's what people will come in and see that kind of stuff going on. Start giving away iPads and tickets to Universal and guess what? You'll get a crowd. You'll get a crowd. But crowds are not always... Indicative of being disciples. And that's where we have to be real careful and cautious. And I think Jesus is demonstrating something here. Because he says in verse 23, they only believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. Something interesting in verse, in verse um, 24, you see the word entrust in the ESV. The New American Standard says entrusting. In trusting. Verse 23, you see the same word, but in the English, it's the same Greek word, but it's translated believed. Same word. Verse 24, they translated in trust or in trusting. Verse 23, believed. You could almost, again, it would be legitimate to translate it this way is that many believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. That would be legitimate because it's the same word. John, listen to me. John, what is he doing? I've written these things so that you may what? Believe. But he wants to make sure you understand what real, genuine belief in Christ is. It's not an intellectual assent to some facts, but it's a belief that's trusting, that's embracing, transformative, life changing. What does he say in chapter 20, verse 31? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, you will have life in His name. It's not just checking off the facts of belief about God. It has this belief transformed your life. John Piper helps us in something he wrote in this quote. He says this, of why would Jesus refuse to entrust himself that's that's so different than the meek mild Jesus as in he he would not entrust himself John Piper says this about this section we're looking at Piper says what it says in essence is that Jesus knows what is in every heart and so he can see when someone believes in a way that is not really Believing. In other words, Jesus' ability to know every heart perfectly leads to the unsettling truth that some belief is not the kind of belief that obtains fellowship with Jesus and eternal life. Some belief is not saving belief. Jesus, he was not impressed with the crowd. He knew what was in the heart. Now, not to get ahead of myself, but that, that, those verses are going to be important when we come to chapter 3. You know what's in John chapter 3? John 3, 16. But what is John 3? It's about Nicodemus. Those verses, you know what a hinge on a door is, right? helps you get from one room to the other. These verses, think of these verses as a a hinge that prepares you to what what we're going to see in chapter 3 about Nicodemus because here's someone who came self-sufficient. You couldn't get any more higher in self-sufficient religion than a Nicodemus, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He comes to Jesus self-sufficient in his own religion. And Jesus knew his heart and says you must be born again. Nicodemus is like, "What?" We'll get to that. We'll get to that later. But let us what kind of faith? What kind of faith does the Bible talk about? Let me give you three quick. I've got a few minutes. Three three kinds of faith. One is counterfeit faith. This is the superficial faith that's a mile wide and an inch deep. This is much of the religion of America today that's more focused on comfort and safety and prosperity. And Jesus knew that their faith was based solely upon them being impressed by the miracles that he did and not because they understood or saw that he was the sent one from God. There's counterfeit faith. Secondly, There's convicting faith. Convicting faith. Jesus did not entrust himself, did not believe in them, because he knew what was in their hearts. And the implication is, is that they themselves did not know what's in their own hearts. Remember David, in one of the Psalms, says, search my heart, O God. See if there's any... Wicked way inside of me. Even David confessed, God, search my heart. Search my heart. You see, saving faith, convicting faith, begins with God and by accepting his evaluation of our fallen hearts. If you want treatment, if you want God's treatment, you've got to accept the diagnosis of the great physician. And the diagnosis of the fallen human heart is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all separated by God. You also have to accept the fact that only God can truly know the human heart. You can't. Well, in my heart, I think this. You don't even know what your human heart says. The older I get, I'm astounded at how wicked my human heart is. More light in the house, more dirt and dust I can see. Hello? You ever ever open your shades and your first thing is, how did it get so dusty in here? I just, you know, I didn't, but my wife did. I don't want to take credit. What does light do? Light reveals. That's why people have a trivial relationship with God. They don't take seriously opening the Word of God. They don't take seriously being in an atmosphere where the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is moving in a community of believers. Why? Because they don't want the light. The light brings trouble. Have you found that to be true? The light will make you uncomfortable. The light, the diagnosis of the great physician on the human heart. You cannot be indifferent or passive when Jesus puts his finger on sin in your life. Only God knows the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, when Samuel, looking at the anointing of David, says this, For God, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue because I have rejected him. But here's the verse, part of the verse. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The heart. We're, talking about, we're not talking about the physical uh, part of our, our body that pumps blood into our system. We're talking about the, our nature. Heart is just a euphemism. It's the nature. Our nature is corrupt. And that's why we need to ask the Lord to reveal to His evaluation of our heart's to us. Proverbs 21.2 Every man's right way every man's way is right in their own eyes, but it's the Lord who weighs the hearts. There's always a way that seems right. You know, (laughs) I like to call it the Debbie Boone theology. Remember, you light up my life that song. How could it be wrong when it that's the Debbie Boone theology how could it be wrong when it feels so right I've sat across from people that have left their spouses why because it just feels that's what the Lord wants me to do do you realize the devil will deceive you now I don't believe a true believer can lose their salvation but he can deceive you and you can walk in deception by disobedience. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust your own heart. It's deceptive. In fact, the Bible says in the Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, What it reminds us of is that when we are born again, we receive a new heart. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. We have been positionally, what, and don't worry about these terms, but they're just words that you have to use. We are positionally sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. We are born again. When you're born again... Uh, We are positionally sanctified, we are positionally holy before God, but then there's an experiential sanctification that we, we walk in living, conforming our lives to the gospel. Let me show you a few examples from Scripture that speaking to believers now, and this is where sometimes People's theology gets a little confused because they confuse justification and sanctification. Sanctification is the application now that I've become a a believer in Jesus, that I am living and walking in the light of Christ, and I'm doing that with the help of the Holy Spirit, God's presence, in my temple now, who is conforming me to His image. I love Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Verse 12, it teaches us the grace of God, the presence of God. I love that. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the NIV. I love that. That means to the believer, as I'm walking in the grace of God, what is the grace of God? The grace of God is my tutor. My tutor. He's teaching me to say what? To say no to those things that clutter up my temple. Now I want you to see in Colossians 1, I talked about how there is an aspect that we are positionally now holy and sanctified, but yet we are still called to walk in taking action against sin. You'll see both of these. Look at Colossians 1 verse 22. And this is from the New Living Translation. Notice the language here. Paul says, yet now. Say now. now. And in the Greek, that means now. <laughs> yet now. Right now. Presently, Christian, he has reconciled you. You, are, you can't be any more reconciled. You can't add to the cross. He, you are now. He has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in His physical body, the cross. As a result, He has brought you, past tense, done deal, He has brought you into His own presence, and you are, what? Holy and blameless as you stand before Him without a single fault. That is your position right now. Can't add to it, can't improve on it, But then a few chapters later, look at what he says. Chapter 3, verse 5. So put to death. Mortify the old King James language. You get the word mortician. Mortify. Put to death. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Verse 6. And because of these things, the anger of God is coming. Verse 7. Now again, he's writing to believers. Verse 7. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now, verse 8, now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Ooh, we could, we could spend a little time on that, couldn't we? Then he says, verse 9, don't lie to each other. Christians lie? Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. You see, we're not doing that in our own power, but because now I've been empowered, and I'm positionally standing holy and righteous and blameless before Him, I can now walk and exercise, putting to death these sinful things that still remain because of the empowerment that I now have, not whether I'm going to stay saved, does He love me, loves me not, loves me No, I am walking in complete security as a believer and because I have that complete security as a believer, I have the empowerment of the Spirit. And so now, I don't want to do sinful things. Does that mean I do sinful things? Yeah. And you do too. So don't look like a bunch of holy Methodists out there, alright? You, you do too. Or Presbyterians, whatever you want to call it. Right? Because we still have this tendency to clutter up the temple. You with me? We need the Holy Spirit to come in there and do what? Turn the tables over. Drive out the garbage that's corrupting the meeting place of God. You see, we spend a lot of time and we should talk about the security but guess what? God wants our temple to reflect the holiness and righteousness of God. You see, that's Convicting faith. And that, thirdly, the kind of faith that Jesus is after is a committed, committed faith. Committed, saving faith means having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not, hear me, it is not about making a decision to follow Jesus. And what do I mean by that? We have equated sometimes salvation of Making a decision, walking an aisle, almost like some religious act, as though that in itself produces genuine salvation. Yeah, you have to make a decision. Have to, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm, not, I'm saying it's not your action and your decision. I've, I have met a lot of people who had a counterfeit faith but could go back and point to the crusade or, or some event 10, 20, whatever years ago where they walked the aisle... And gave their heart to Jesus. But unfortunately, their heart doesn't reflect it ever was given to Jesus. They made an intellectual what? They had that superficial faith that Jesus says. They were aroused by the seeing, the emotions. We're going to sing it one more time. Just as I am, one more time. I love that hymn. The buses will wait. Come on, I know there's people out there that still, you know the convicting of the Holy Spirit. Listen, sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes that can be a lot of manipulation. And people respond in the emotion of the moment. And when they leave the building, they've left their faith at the altar. Because it never really changed them. You can't do it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's... That's Jesus' whole point with Nicodemus. You must be born again. How can I be born again? Jesus says, you can't. That's why it's a miracle. You can no more be saved by your own works than you can get back in your mother's womb and be born physically again. It's It's a human impossibility. That's why it's such a miracle of God's regenerating Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Last verse. Probably the most sobering verses of Scripture. Remember Jesus said that he knew what was in the heart. He wouldn't commit himself to those people because he knew the superficiality. Jesus says in Matthew 7, some of the most sobering verses of Scripture. He says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, on that day, that day of the, I believe, the Bema judgment of Christ, on that day, many, many, circle that, many will say to me, don't be impressed with polls that talk about the growth of the church and Christianity in America. Don't be impressed with that be depressed when you see the number of abortions and divorce and et cetera, et cetera. Why? That reflects the human condition of our country. If everybody was truly born again that ever walked an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade, and you know Billy Graham's one of my heroes, this country would have been transformed years ago. Something was disconnected, people, right? There will be many who say... Lord, Lord! And notice what they're doing. They're waving their spiritual resumes. Did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do mighty, do many mighty works in your name? And one of the most sobering words, verse 23, and then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers, Does that mean he's saying in his omniscience he didn't know they exist? No, he's not saying that. But that knew, I never knew you, that's the same intimate connection relationship. The old King James would talk about how Adam knew his wife and she gave birth to Cain, Abel. It speaks of an intimate relationship. He says, you believed in me. I never believed in you because I knew the emptiness of your faith. You see, the Lord is reminding us through John. These things are written so that you would believe. Oh, I believe. Do you really believe? Is it evidence that Jesus said a tree, a, tree by, a tree will be evidenced of its healthiness? You'll know a tree by its what? By its fruit. The fruit shows the root. Right? The root system of the heart reveals in its fruitfulness, in its love. What, is, what does God do? He changes the heart. He changes your affections. Does He do it overnight? No. At least He hadn't with me. He changed you from a nasty, cursing person into a sweet-talking, nice, patient person. He turns you into a raging, maniac, abusive husband or wife. Into a loving, tender, loving, gracious. How does that happen? Tony Robbins? No. How does that happen? happens by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that takes dead hearts of men and women and makes them alive but alive to do what? To love him, to live for him. And Jesus is going to remind us, with Mr. Nicodemus, you can't do this. I don't care what religious degrees you got. You're helpless. Only God can make you born again.